Welcome to LifePoint Church. Our mission is to glorify God and make gospel-driven disciples by engaging people in the unexpected joy of a life more and more dependent on Jesus. Malachi 3, 6-12 For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet ye are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vines in the fields shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Well, my name is Zach, one of the pastors here, and we've been walking through the book of Malachi together in this series. And we gotta admit, it's been a tough book, hasn't it? The punches just keep coming. And uh, Chip sings appropriately when he says we're prone to wander. Don't we see that in the book of Malachi? The people of God at this time had been wandering a lot. Here's a quick review of what we've studied in Malachi. They have failed in that they were skeptical of God's love. They failed because they were apathetic in their worship. They wandered because they were careless toward his law. They left God because they were faithless in marriage, so much so that God needed to bring a refining fire to purify these people. They had wandered from God. They were lost. I don't know if you've ever been lost before. I've been lost twice hiking in Colorado. And I've been lost in two really distinct kinds of ways. There's only two ways you get lost in Colorado. Uh, the, the first time I got lost, I was on the trail and I saw a beautiful waterfall in the distance. And so I chose to do something silly and leave the trail. And I thought, I'm gonna hike to the top of this waterfall. I intentionally left the trail. I climbed through, tried to get to the waterfall, realized I'm lost. In that case, getting back was as simple as attempting to retrace my steps because I knew I had wandered from the path. But there's another kind of lost, and it's much worse than that kind of lost. The second time I got lost in Colorado, it was a much longer hike that I'd been on, and I noticed as I was hiking, the trail kept getting thinner and thinner. The bushes and trees got thicker and thicker. It was summer, and I had shorts on, and I remember just looking at my forearms and my legs, and I was bleeding everywhere, just small little cuts, because I'd been bushwhacking through the wilderness, and eventually I got to the point where I realized, oh, I'm not on a path. And in fact, I realized that I never started on a path where I parked was near actually a game trail that elk use, not humans. <laughs> and I had wandered very far into the Rocky Mountain National Park and I, I didn't know I was lost. Do you see the difference? 
You see, the first kind, I, I was lost, but at least I knew I was lost. The second kind of lost, it's much more dangerous. It's the kind of lost where you're not even aware that you're lost. You're too insensitive to the signs to realize you've wandered from the path. This second kind of lost is the kind of lost the people of God are in Malachi. And especially in this chapter, chapter three, they're not even aware that they're lost. I get this because of their question in, in verse seven. Look at the, the text with me. They ask a question. God says, return to me. He calls to them and look at their response. But you say, how shall we return? Now it's possible in verse seven that that's a genuine question. Like these people are actually asking, yes, we want to return to you, God. Show us the path. But when you read the context and the repeated wanderings from God, it's, it's better taken as a stubborn, hardened heart that asks a rhetorical question of God. They're not expecting an answer. It reads more like this, return to you. Return to you, God, we're not even lost. What do you mean return to you? How should we return to you? It's an icky question. And it's because the people of God don't even realize they're lost. That's a dire situation. Have you ever wandered from God in your life? Maybe your wandering was the willful kind, the intentional one. You, you were on the path, but you saw something and you chose in that moment to wander. Maybe you're here today and you're lost and you don't even realize it. In fact, you've been wandering down a game trail of life for many years. Have you been lost from God, wandering? It's a dangerous position to be in. And today, I, I'm, I'm asking God, I've been praying for you and for myself, that God would awaken our sensitivities to the signs that we're lost and that we would soften our hearts to return to him. So th that brings up the important question for today. And there's three questions I'll try to explore. Why should we return to God? How can we return to God? And what would happen if we did? Why, how, and what would happen if we did? Look with the, your Bibles with me, Malachi 3, first question. Why return to God? Principle. Because God does not change, we can count on him returning to us. See that principle in the text with me, starting in verse six. Malachi 3, 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Now, we get, we get a nerd out in some Hebrew here a little bit for a second. And that phrase, are not consumed, is a word that also can be translated, um, does not cease, does not cease. As it reads in your ESV, it fits really well with the previous section that Dale preached last week, and that's totally fitting, that God doesn't consume the people in the refining fire. That makes a lot of sense. 
It can also make sense when it's paired with the following section. If you translate that phrase, the children of Jacob do not cease. And if that is our translation, here's the sense of verse six. For I, the Lord, don't change, and neither do you, O children of Jacob. Neither do you. You don't cease doing what, verse seven? Turning aside from my statutes. Oh, from the days of your fathers. You've got generations of making a habit of ignoring me. You don't cease in wandering. Oh, that's a different sense, isn't it? I, God, perfect, holy, good, never change, and you don't cease either. Oh, people of Jacob, you have continued to be who you continue to be. You've wandered. And so God calls out to them. He says, return to me and I will return to you. Why? What is the motivation for returning to God that that Malachi is communicating in Malachi 3? Malachi is saying, return to me because I am a God who is unchanging. Look at the history of your fathers. Haven't you seen, O oh people, how faithful I have been day after day, generation after generation. I do not change. I uphold my end of the covenant. Therefore, you want a motive for returning to me? Because I am the God who never changes at any moment that you would turn from facing your back to me in repentance. I will return to you as surely as I'm a God who never changes. Take it to the bank. I'll be there. This is the great motive that Malachi begins with, why we can return to God. Have you ever called a friend who you've kind of had a falling out with and you weren't sure if you called them that they'd return the call? Maybe the bitterness was too deep. This is not the case ever with the God we serve. He will always answer the call when we turn to him because our God's unchanging. He's true to himself. Have you wandered from God? Maybe intentionally? Are you lost and you don't even know it? Here, Good news today, not because of you, but because of who God is. Return to him and he will surely return to you. Why return to God? He's unchanging, so return to him. Well, that begs the question, how? How? How do you actually go about returning to God? Another way to ask this is if the people of God in their hardness of heart, we're actually genuinely asking this question. Not a rhetorical question, a genuine ask. How does God answer? Look at verse seven and eight with me. How can we return to God? God says this, he says, take the risk of depending on me. Take the risk of depending on me. Verse eight, God answers their rhetorical question. How shall we return to you? We're not even lost. What do you mean? What do you mean? 
God says this in verse eight, will man rob God? Isn't it ironic? They ask a rhetorical question, God answers with a rhetorical question. He's got a sense of humor here. Don't you see how rhetorical that is? Will man rob God? Like, that's like a mouse robbing a lion. This is absurd. We know the answer, no. No, of course not. Ah, then he gets him. Then he gets him. Verse eight. But you have robbed me. Do you see the dialogue here? They say, oh, but how have we robbed you? What do you mean? What do you mean? Do you see how lost they are and they don't even realize it? And then God's gonna take and stick his finger right in one specific example of their wandering and he's going for the jugular. He's going to go after something that he knows will get their attention. What could I point out in your wandering that would immediately make you perk up your ears and listen? God says you've wandered in your money. And a silence went over the crowd. <laughs> oh, that'll get up in her craw, won't it? Ugh. your money. He says, how have you robbed me? In your tithes and contributions, your curse with a curse, for you are robbing me and the whole nation of you. God goes right after the heart of it. One example of their wandering, and there are many, but he chooses money to get their attention. He sticks his finger in it. He says, you've skimped on your tithes and offering. You're robbing me. You're missing out on the full blessing of my design and you're cursed. This curse is not only a lacking of the experience of the blessing of God, but it also points out another principle when we're stingy givers. This comes in Proverbs eleven twenty four. Look at this, thinking it on the screen. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. It's a wisdom say, statement. But look at the stingy giver. Another withholds what he should give, and what do they get? They suffer want. Have you seen that principle play out? One's generous with their money, and they, they seem to be content and another is stingy and self-centered, and all they get is wanting more, never satisfied, never can be content. It's a principle. It's part of the curse. It's part of the curse they're experiencing. What is this tithe, this Old Testament thing? He says, you've withheld in your tithes and contributions, that Hebrew word for tithe means 10%. It's a principle of proportional giving to God. It actually even predates, we see examples of it in the Old Testament before the law and command for the tithe even comes up. So it's got a foundation before that, but it is an explicit command of God in the Old Testament. And it comes out in a, a couple places, I'll point to in a second. This tithe existed to help people who are needy in the community. And it also provided for the leaders and teachers of the law, for the Levites. And if you remember, they were the tribe that didn't get any land appointed to them. So all the other tribes get nice spots. They're doing it out for I want the ocean view and everything. And, and the Levites, they gotta live in the church. 
and they are literally dependent upon the other tribes. They don't have any land or possessions. That's a big deal in an agrarian society. You are utterly dependent on others giving or your host. <laughs> and this is the Levites. And this was the tie that was designed to supply for the leaders and also to supply for needs in the community, but there was an even greater purpose in the tithe. And I see this in Deuteronomy 14, another place where it's commanded. Look at the purpose of tithing. Why did God design this? Why 10%? What's the point? Deuteronomy 14, you shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year, and then it continues later in 23, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Don't you see? Tithing didn't just have practical reasons for how it could supply the needs of the people or the priests. Tithing did something in the tither. This rhythm of giving 10% of your income to God in the Old Testament created in them an opportunity to learn to fear God. And that's not just the sense of being afraid of him. This is a fear that is a reverent respect for him or a dependence upon him. God, I fear you, so I will bring this to demonstrate my dependence on you. You are my source. You're my provider, not my wisdom or income or GameStop shorting trading. Although that'd be really clever if you rode that train for a little bit. God designs tithing to help us learn to fear him. Now this brings a relevant question. We've only been talking about the Old Testament so far. And a relevant question is, are we required to tithe in the New Testament? It's a new day, this is the church. This isn't the temple system. Is this required today? That's a good question. And I'll, I'll give a short response. We, we have covered this actually in an entire series that you can go back and look at in our archives. I would encourage you to do that, but I'll try and be brief today. Though not explicitly required as a command in the New Testament, Jesus himself never abolishes this Old Testament command of tithing. In fact, he seems to go beyond it and uphold it. When Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees in Matthew 23 about tithing, he says this, look at the cross reference. I think it got on the screen. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, listen to the relevance here, you tithe, mint, dill, and cumin. So has anybody here got an herb garden? Okay, when your mint gets to 10 inches, get out the ruler, take some scissors, snip off one-tenth, just one inch, put that in your pocket and bring that to church. That's what these Pharisees are doing. They are fulfilling the letter of the law. They're going beyond the principle. This is, whew. We're doing what the Old Testament Mosaic law requires. We're tithing. Look what Jesus says, though. You've done this, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy and faithfulness. But then notice what Jesus does here. If the Old Testament law of tithing and that principle is totally irrelevant, I would expect right here Jesus to say, forget about your mint and do justice and mercy. 
But that's not what he says. Look what Jesus says. These, as in tithing, down to your mint, you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Here's Jesus himself. He, he could abolish it, he, he holds the bar. He's like, keep doing that, but you're missing the bigger point. <laughs> Not your mint, do justice. Be merciful to people and loving. So Jesus doesn't abolish the tithe. He says you ought to do this without neglecting the weightier matters. And then Paul goes even further. Paul's like, forget about just giving 10% of your money or even 10% of your lives. Paul says, sacrifice your whole life. In Romans 12, he says, be a living sacrifice. Lay everything on the altar, not just the top little portion of your mint plant. Put your body on it and say, God, I'm a living sacrifice to you. Have everything, all of me, given to you. It seems then that though not explicitly today for New Testament Christians that we're under a strict, explicit law of giving 10%, it seems then that giving 10% today would be a good starting place as a principle, like training wheels as we learn to fear God, that is to trust him in a practice that begins to loosen money's grip on our hearts that's why Jesus says in Matthew 6, 21, he says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Our hearts follow our treasure. And Jesus is saying, look, treasure me. Depend on me. Have a small practice in your life that says, God, you are the source of my provision and sustenance. And every, th this is what tithing is. Tithing is an act of faith every time. It's a practice of dependence on him. That's why God says in verse 10, he says something that's unprecedented. And, and if you've read the Bible, it, your, your ears almost in this point should be going, ah, oh, is that even right? Should God say this? Because <laughs> in other parts of the Bible, God says, don't test me. But right here, Malachi 3, what does he say in verse 10? Don't take my word for it. He says it right here. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food and thereby put me to the test. Put me to the test and see if I won't open the windows of heaven and pour down blessings on you until there's no more need. God's saying, try me. Try me. You want to find out what kind of God I am? What kind of provider I'm capable of being? Test me out. I'm a Minnesotan in heart. I can't get away from this. So when I hear a phrase like test me, I picture my upbringing in early December. Do you know what happens in early December in Minnesota? All the northern Minnesota rednecks are getting their Ford F-150s at the edge of a pond and they're trying to figure out can this ice hold my truck? <laughs> that's what's happening. And they got the full rig. They've got an ice house that's got a TV and a heater in it, and they want to pull that thing onto a lake that's 80 feet deep and see if it holds. 
And, and that's the picture that I get here. When, when God says, test me, test me. And getting onto a frozen lake in December, that's a real test. You fall through, you're gonna die. And he says, you know what? Step on me. Test it. And just 3%. Yes, yeah, 3%. Let's see, God, can you still provide? And, oh, he did. He did. I, I still have a retirement account. I, I, there was food on my table. He provided. Oh, my goodness. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring the Ford F-150 now, and I'm going to go 10%. Oh, he held me up. I'm still standing. This is what God is saying. He's saying, put me to the test. Step out onto the ice of financial giving and find out if I'm not the God who I say I am. If I'm not able to provide everything that you need. This does two things. It sees tithing every time. It's a step of faith. It's like the Minnesotan on the ice. It loosens our grip on money and treasuring it, and it teaches our hearts in a practice like any other spiritual discipline to begin to treasure Jesus above our stuff. And that could be for the spenders, okay? That's gonna help you not be so gripped to the 87-inch television that you really wanted to save up for, but it does another thing because there's some of us, you're not buying huge flat screens, but you use your money as your security. You live frugally, you've got a great savings, you check your 401k often because your heart of security is found in that. But not God. And so it's another reason. God, he, he wants you to find security in him. He wants you to not be self-reliant, but God-reliant. And he has a practice for this that we might grow in relying on him. Now understand today I'm talking about money and there's a spectrum of giving represented here in the room. I wanna acknowledge that. Some people here have never even done this. Never tithed, it's totally foreign to you. Some people have done that faithfully. Others excel in the grace of giving. They exude generosity. And I just wanna invite all of us to stand underneath scripture and evaluate have you wandered? Are you on a game trail financially and you're not even aware that subtly you've placed your reliance on your finances rather than the God who gave you them in the first place? Have you wandered? Is your security in your stock investments or is it isn't in the God who provides? This is how we return to God in practice. A real, specific, too close to home practice, God goes after money. First, he says, why return to me? Because I'm unchanging. And second, how do you return to me? Take a risk. Try, depending on me. What would happen if we did? What would be the results if we actually trusted God? And, and we see this in verse 11 and 12. God will show us and the nations who he really is. A God who's powerful to provide and worthy of our trust. See it in verse 10 and 11 and 12. He says this, bring the full tithe. 
bring in everything, that there would be food in my house, in the, this is the storehouses of the temple, put me to the test, see if I won't open the heavens and pour down a blessing till there's no more need. The picture in an agrarian society, this is farmers. Farmers are looking to the sky. We really could use some rain and the, the picture is like, watch me just open up the sky, pour out warm rain so that your crops have a huge ROI tenfold, hundredfold return on investment because I, your God, provide for you. This is what results. Blessing, immense blessing. It's right here in the text and this is supported in other Proverbs and scriptures. I'll give a couple cross references. A Proverbs 11.25, whoever brings blessing will be enriched. The one who waters will himself be watered. It's a principle. It's not a promise. It's not an exact law. There's a principle of life that comes from Proverbs. And it continues in the New Testament with Jesus teaching. Look what Jesus says. Matthew, uh, what is this? Matthew, uh, somebody help me. Luke, Luke, it's Luke. Six, give. Thanks, Ross, helping me out. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. Jesus affirms this principle. How about Paul? Does he agree? 2 Corinthians 9, 6. The point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly and not under compulsion. Hear me, not under compulsion. Not the point of the New Testament. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver. I wonder if one of the reasons that Paul regularly asks people to give money on his missionary journeys to help other churches, but he never leverages the Old Testament requirement of a tithe, not once. I wonder if one of the reasons is that he wanted people not to give out of compulsion. Look, churches, you're, you're required to give 10%, come on. No, Paul wanted them to give out of a grateful heart, a cheerful giver, because he was after their hearts, not just giving. Look at the other result though in verse 12. It's not just that the givers become blessed, but it's that the world, the nations see that you're a blessed people. Do you see it in verse 12? There it is, verse 12. He says, then all nations will call you blessed, you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. We give generously before a watching world and our generosity is an opportunity then to show the world, look, we can be a generous people because our God is a generous God. He's able to provide. And you wanna know about his generosity? You wanna see the extent? Is, is God a three percenter or a 10 percenter? He's a hundred percenter. This is how God gave, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace, unmerited giving of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. I came that you might have life and life abundant. But that's not what Jesus experienced. 
Jesus laid aside the riches and glory of heaven to take on flesh, to live a poor life, and to die a sinner's death. This is the generosity of our God. And here's the point. No one outgives God. Nobody. Therefore, gospel-driven giving is not a duty, it's a delight. All giving is a response to the God who gave everything for us. Therefore, God loves a cheerful giver. He wants you to see how generous he's been to us. And so there, out of the overflow of your heart, let it be an act of worship, an offering of praise. This is the key attitude of the New Testament giving and a gospel-driven giving. All of our giving is a response to the God who gives generously. How shall we return? You wandered today, maybe intentionally, saw that waterfall, maybe unintentionally, you followed the elk. You wandered today. I want to call us um, to return to him. Return to him because he will surely return to you. Take a risk today. Try out depending on him. Give it a try. See what living in dependence on God is like. And then we give to the ultimate giver as a response and see if he's not able to provide all that you need. And then some of you today, you're excelling in the grace of giving already. I want to commend you and I want to challenge you to tell your story. Because verse 12 says the nations will see that blessing. You've got to testify. If you have experienced stepping out on the ice on your Ford F-150 and God held you up financially, tell somebody. It's not to boast. It's to say, look, I'm a living testimony. I've seen the way the God of provision provides. He's trustworthy and that honors him when you share your story, if you excel in the grace of giving. Return to him if you've wandered and testify if you're exceeding in the grace of giving. Let's pray today. Father, we look to you to remind us today. And, and not just, I, I don't want us to just know that you're generous. I want to feel that you are generous today. And Father, you know, I confess, I admit, I, I, I'm frustrated by the English language that fails to communicate the weight of your generosity towards us. So Spirit, come now and, and impress upon our hearts, stir up our affections to be moved by your generosity to our core, to be utterly thankful, to see clearly just how gracious you are how powerful you are, how able you are to provide. And then help us today, Lord, respond then in genuine worship to love you with all of our hearts, every category of life, even our finances, Lord. We want to offer them to you as a right response to all that you've done. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes LifePoint Church's podcast. 
For more information about our church, visit sharethelife.org.